You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. And all God's people said, amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, where we're going to begin a series today called The Journey Through Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at the subject in the first part of this series on Calvinism and unwrapping Calvinism. Because I'm still struggling with a cough, I'm going to steal Steve's stool here and use it to set my water on. I don't know about I still hear some coughing, so uh, I understand this, this, uh, this thing is... This cough kind of sticks with you even after you're feeling better, so... That's part of it. But anyway, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians beginning at, at chapter 1. And let me go ahead and, and read these first of these opening verses from the Apostle Paul, and then we're going to spend a moment in prayer. And uh, you, you pray for me. This is a very, very controversial subject, and it's one in which our denomination is struggling a great deal with. And so I want to try to give you maybe something that you can uh, hang your hat on. And uh, so you pray. But anyway, in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me read on. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it's important for you and I to look in every time you see in Christ, in Him, in love. I want you to, if you have a pen, I want you to underline that. Verse 4, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things, all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with His purpose, with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in Him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You love us. We thank You so much for the power, dear Lord, of these words and what they mean. We pray, dear Lord, as we begin this journey, we pray, dear Lord, our hearts would be sensitive to your will. Lord, you know the difficulty, the manner by which I'm about to preach is different from a way that I normally am used to. Lord, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone and seeking to share information that I hope will help the people in this room, people who listen on the website, maybe to understand even more clearly some of the deep theological truths that Paul has placed here, even in this first chapter. We ask you, dear Lord, to tune our hearts. Allow your Holy Spirit to remove any presuppositions, any knowledge that we bring that would cause us, dear Lord, maybe to already have an opinion. But Lord, may we be open to the preaching of your word. And may you stir our hearts, dear Lord, and may we never be the same. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask you to cleanse me, to forgive me. Lord, I'm I'm doing everything I can to seek to walk with you. Because Lord, I want to be a vessel today that you can use. But I need the people in this congregation to also make that same commitment. And we'll give you the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The series is called Unwrapping Calvinism. And, and let me just go ahead and say right now, in our denomination, Southern, the Southern Baptist Convention, let me tell you some things about our denomination. We have the largest seminaries in the world. We are the largest evangelical missionary sending agency in the world. Um, we have probably one of the most powerful lobbying groups in Washington on moral and ethical issues. Our denomination, in a lot of ways, is a picture of God's blessing and how God has richly blessed us. We this year have elected an African-American to be the president of our convention. And, and I want you to know something, a great man of God, Fred Luter, the pastor there in New Orleans, and uh, I, I believe brings great wisdom and insight to Southern Baptists. But as good as our denomination is right now, we are in the midst of a theological controversy. Uh, in a a time when uh, we have enough controversy, it seems like that we have more, and it deals with this subject of Calvinism. And whether we are Calvinistic, Arminian, and I'll explain that in a moment, or or just who we are theologically. Now, let me say this. I, I did my master's degree in a Southern Baptist school. I did it at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, I did my doctorate in a Reformed Calvinistic seminary, and that's Reformed Theological Seminary where where I did my doctorate there. I studied under a man by the name of R.C. Sproul, who's probably one of the preeminent, one of the great uh, theological minds, especially in the area of Calvinism. Now, a lot of people have said that we're becoming more, and I heard Sproul say this back years ago when I was working on my doctorate, 
that there was a danger that as Baptists began to become more Calvinistic, that as we begin to move in that direction theologically, and that means that we have a... Uh, well, I'll explain in a moment. But anyway, as we move in that direction, that we are becoming more and more militant. In other words, lines are being drawn and, and our denomination is beginning to separate and polarize over this issue of Calvinism. Now, you may say, well, why is this issue important? Because in some ways, and, and people have to understand this, even if they hold to Calvinism, they have to understand this, that, that as a non-Calvinist, that sometimes people see the character of God in question. In other words, if God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, then in essence, does God make it available for all men and women, boys and girls, to be saved? And what determines whether they're saved or not? Is it the sovereign choice of God or is it the free will choice of man? You see, that's the crux theologically, of this issue of Calvinism. Now, we're not going to put this series on the website yet. In other words, because we're using visual aids and some things that I'm going to explain in a moment. But let me say again, this is difficult for me as your pastor. Please hear me. I'm not comfortable standing up here using the pulpit for a history lesson or a lecture out of a seminary class. But there's some things about our history that you need to know and things that you need to know about church history in general. So periodically, if you're with me, just let me know with a good amen. Okay. Now, what I want to do is I want to do justice to the book of Ephesians. But in order for us to begin this study in Ephesians, we have to understand theologically why there's controversy in where we are as a convention. Now, there's two things. First of all, the book of Ephesians is theologically rich with terminology that a lot of times leads to misunderstanding. The elect, predestination, are two terms. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that terminology. Secondly, and this is critical... What theological position you and I hold to will affect how we exegete or how we discern what the Word of God is saying. In other words, if I'm a Calvinist, then I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 with certain presuppositions, certain tendencies. I'm going to look at it a certain way. If I'm Arminian, and let me just say real quickly, a Calvinist, for example, would be a Presbyterian. An Arminian would be a Methodist. A Calvinist would stress that God is sovereign and God has elected or chosen a group of people to be saved and allowed the rest of them to go to hell. Now, I'm putting it as simple as I can put it. That he, in essence, has elected a group to go to heaven and he's provided everything that they need and, 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 and he's allowed the rest of humanity to naturally go the direction they were going and that is to hell and that he has elected this group, and he has predestined them. He has predestinated. The destiny was made pre before man even made a choice. So man's free will is something that has been orchestrated by God to respond favorably to the gift of grace. That's it. 
Let me put it this way because I'm going to have to... I, I, I was planning on doing it a little bit later, but let me do it this way. In essence, what God says is... In, what a Calvinist would say is that, let's say, Sheila is the elect, and she is predestined eventually to come to Christ and through Christ is able to enter into this place of refuge. And we're going to talk about that for a moment. In essence, he, out of his grace and mercy, elects Sheila, but he allows Emily to naturally go where sin's going to take her, and that's to hell. And she's the non-elect. In other words, God is sovereign, and he's made a decision according to his grace and mercy to save a remnant, to save a few. And the rest of humanity is allowed to naturally go where they're going to go, and that is to hell. Now, folks, you may say, well, that sounds brutal. And you may say, well, I'm a Calvinist, and I think there's a nicer way to put it. I'm putting it about as good as I can put it. And I've studied under the best. Now, an Arminian, a Methodist, believes this. They hold to an Arminian position which basically says that Sheila and Emily have a free will, and because of that free will, they're able to determine whether they will go meet Christ, encounter Christ, and come to Christ, and eventually end up here in this place of refuge. But uh, where uh, an Arminian believes this, I can go into this place of refuge through Christ, but by my own will, they tend to make the will... Uh, they tend to exaggerate, magnify the will so that I can not only come in here, I can come back out. Which means that I could be saved and be in Christ, but my will could cause me to eventually reject and come back out of Christ and be separated. And we don't agree with that because we hold to the eternal security of the believer. Okay, so theologically, this has become a very controversial subject in our denomination. I really believe that in a lot of ways it is the tool of the enemy in these last days to affect the largest evangelical, Protestant evangelical, missionary sending organization agency in the world. And I believe it's a tool of our enemy. Now, so whatever position theologically, if you're a Calvinist or you lean toward Calvinism, then you're going to read into the theological terminology of Ephesians chapter 1 a Calvinistic view. If you are Arminian and you lean toward Arminian, which means you hold to free will and man can, give, man can be saved and he can be lost and it's based on his free will and not the sovereignty of God, then the reality is, is that you're going to see Ephesians a certain way. But I'm going to tell you that traditional Southern Baptists, doctrinally, we did not hold to either camp. And I'm going to try to explain to you how and why and how we came to the decision and where we are. Now, I also want to remind you of this. I went through a time of agonizing, excruciating difficulty as I worked through this. I was sitting seven and a half hours every day in doctoral seminar with R.C. Sproul, who wrote the book Chosen by God, one of the books, uh, a key book about Calvinism. 
seven and a half hours every day for weeks. So it sent me through this process of trying to determine theologically what I believe. Herschel Hobbes, who is a critical... um, He is a leader among Southern Baptists, and he since died. He said that in 1971 that he got a letter from some Calvinist friends of his because Herschel Hobbes was instrumental in bringing the Baptist faith and message, our doctrinal statement together that helps us to understand what the Bible teaches about issues such as this. He chaired the committee that brought together the Baptist faith and message. And if you don't know what that is, you need, to dis- you need to find out what that is. Because that's our doctrinal statement as our denomination would have it. In 1971, Herschel Hobbes got a letter from a Calvinist, from some Calvinist friends of his, who basically said this, we feel that you have set our denomination back. Well, no, they said this, we, hope, we had hoped that you would set our denomination back 500 years which meant that you would set us back to Calvinism and this theological positioning that took place during the Reformation. Herschel Hobbes said, I don't want to set us back 500 years. Now this is critical. I want to set us back 2,000 years. And Herschel Hobbes went on to say that if Baptists hold to a creed or a confession like, the, like Presbyterian or Methodist, then the danger is, is that we will begin to exegete the Scripture to support our theological position. And he said, that is not who we are. We are called people of the book. And this was critical. Now, where did it all start? Where did Calvinism come from and where did this whole theological controversy begin? In the 2,000 year history of the church, there's always been problems and difficulties. Every one of Paul's letters are about problems in the church and issues and difficulties that they face. It's part of it. It's part of being a church. If you're here today and you want to join a church that doesn't have any problems, then you don't need to be here. We got plenty of them. Anytime you get people together, there's going to be problems. Amen? Well, the church, if, if you go back, how many of you have ever heard of Augustine? Anybody ever heard of Augustine? Okay. And if you haven't, I challenge you to read some Augustine. Augustine came along during the time when, when a man by the name of Constantine was the emperor of Rome. And Constantine converted to Christianity. And when he did, he took the Roman Empire, who you remember had nailed Jesus to the cross and were, were vehemently against the, the Israelites, and in 70 A.D. destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Israelites to all over the world. In essence, uh, Constantine said to the Roman Empire, we are now in reality or in some ways Christian. And once government sanctioned the church, the outcome of that was, for instance, the Catholic Church seated there in Rome. Augustine would begin to see problems with a government-sanctioned church. He would begin to see problems with the early Catholic church, and he would begin to write against it or seek to reform it. Now fast forward 1,200 years, and we come into the 1400s, the 15th century. And the Catholic church 
there in the 1500s and the 1400s and 1500s is now the is now the moving and shaking. Uh, it, in, in, in essence, it is the it is it is the church worldwide. In other words, the Catholic Church centered there in Rome. And there began to be problems because the Catholic Church was building. They were building, they were building um, all kinds of massive churches and edifices to various saints and, and, and the Pope and the authority of the Pope. Uh, church authority versus biblical authority. And then the sale of indulgences. In other words, in essence, what the Catholic Church did to raise money is they began to sell forgiveness. They begin to say to people, listen, if you'll come, we'll give you a paper from the church that says that you've repented, and here's a, here's a paper that will give you forgiveness. But it's going to cost you, and if you'll pay, then we'll use that money and invest it into the, the shrines and the edifices of the Catholic Church. There was one man that this, this flew in the face of him. His man, this man was named Martin Luther. How many of you have ever heard of the name Martin Luther? Now you may say, well, I've heard of Martin Luther King Jr. Well, I got news for you. Michael King, his dad, you've heard the story, named his son Martin Luther King Jr. after Martin Luther, the great reformer. Martin Luther's church members came back with these letters. They were holding these, these papers that said, we just bought forgiveness. And, and, and Luther became, he just became very angry. He began to be upset. He was upset over the direction of the Catholic Church and over, and over things such as a cell of indulgence and the fact that his people were going and thinking they got forgiveness by paying for something that was free. And so Martin Luther began to seek to reform the church, the Catholic church. He wasn't starting a Protestant movement. He, in essence, wanted to, in essence, reform the Catholic church, which, which in his day was primarily the church. So what he does is he goes to the doors of Wittenberg, the University of Wittenberg, there in, 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 and he takes and he, and he nails the 95 Thesis, this document, he nails it to the door. And it lists all of the problems with the Catholic Church. Number 86, if the Pope wants to build something, an edifice or a temple or a shrine to a saint or to himself, then let him do it with his own money because the Pope was one of the most wealthy figures in all the world. So you can imagine what that did to the Catholic Church. Now all of a sudden Martin Luther was challenging them to a debate and he had listed 95, 95 statements that he wished to debate them about. And this has not been that long ago. Between five and 600 years ago, and I'm here to tell you that church history is always turbulent. And out of that Reformation came the Protestant movement. In other words, people began to break away from a church they thought that was corrupt, and that was the Catholic Church. Martin Luther wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but there came a point to when people began to pull away from the Catholic Church, and they began to start what we call the Protestant movement. 
And along comes a figure by the name of John Calvin. John Calvin is a preacher, a gifted man, theologically a brilliant man in many ways. And so he was enlisted, John Calvin was enlisted to reform the church and to lead alongside of Martin Luther this reformation. So theologically, he wrote a series called the Institutes of the Christian Faith, a large uh, uh, series of books on everything from church government to worship, liturgy, to uh, worship, and all of these things. But it was already getting ugly during the Reformation. There was a man by the name, to give you an example, there was a man by the name of Michael Servetus. And Michael Servetus was the one who had charted the, or, or documented the function of the circulatory system. He was a doctor. He didn't agree with John Calvin theologically. He didn't agree with, for instance, infant baptism. He said that infant baptism was a, was a teaching that had been hatched out of hell. And because of that, Michael Servetus was murdered. He was killed. And John Calvin consented to his death. And it's one of the things that uh, Calvinists don't like, they have a problem with. But the reason I bring that up is because there is always a danger when you and I begin to label one another, we begin to hang tags and we begin to choose upside because the danger is we can throw the baby out with a wash. Theologically then, it began to polarize. The church now was beginning to split. It was beginning to come apart. It was gravitating around personalities. It was polarizing around key creeds and confessions and theological systems. And so the Reformation was hurting the church in some ways. In other ways, it was delivering the church from corruption. The Reformation lines were being drawn around peripheral issues, unclear peripheral biblical issues. Personalities were polarizing. There was John Calvin. There was another man by the name of Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius was also a man, a learned man, gifted man, theologian, scholar. He studied under the son-in-law of John Calvin while studying under Calvin's son-in-law. And while reading and exegeting the book of Romans, he could not agree with Calvinism, their understanding of election and predestination. So he began to polarize and he began to rally troops. And we have, we have theologically the Arminians who come out of that camp. We have the Calvinists who come out of this camp. And they're both polarized. And they don't agree. And the reality is, is that Baptist was somehow... In the middle here, because see, we didn't want to necessarily find ourselves holding to a creed or a confession, and we surely didn't want to rally around any personality. We felt like there would be danger in that, because personalities can sometimes be seen as infallible and inerrant. My problem sometimes as I was working on my doctorate, I wondered sometimes if we were not studying Augustine and Calvin and Luther with, with the same commitment and devotion that we would be studying the Word of God, and I had a problem with that. But that could also be said of Jacob Arminius and the Arminian position. 
Paul warned of this in 1 Corinthians when he told the church at Corinth because of spiritual immaturity. He said, some of you say you're of Paul, some say you're of Apollos, some say you're of Peter, some say you're of Jesus, and you're all wrong. You may say, well, wait a minute, what about that group that said they were of Jesus? Well, they were just pious, spiritual, pious people that were trying to separate themselves from everyone else when they, in essence, weren't really of Jesus either. You see, the danger of our enemy and what he was able to do was he was able to divide and split us. But Baptists, Southern Baptists, were known as people of the book. We began to pull away from that. We said to the Calvinists, we love you. We said to our Presbyterian friends, we love you. We, we, think we, we, uh, we, we appreciate your depth and your insight and your academia and all these things. We thank you for that. And there are many things about Calvinism that we love because we love the sovereignty of God. We turned and we looked at, the, uh, at the, those that had followed Jacob Arminius, those Arminian, our Methodist friends, many of them, men like John Wesley, many who have written the hymns that we sang. We said to these people, we agree and we love you, and there's many things that we agree about. But we don't agree with you on eternal security, and there are other things that we can't agree with you about. And so our denomination begin to say we can't hang our hat on either theological position. So in essence, we called ourselves, in some ways, non-Calvinist. Herschel Hobbes, again, a key figure in Southern Baptists, who had an earned Ph.D., who studied under A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar who's written many of the great classics on the biblical Greek language, who served on the board of Christ Christianity today, who wrote so many books that it took seven publishers to keep up with them, who wrote hundreds of books on Baptist doctrine and commentaries made this statement about Calvinism. Hobbes rejected the idea of God's election being based on a few. He believed that election referred to God's plan of salvation designed for all people. All who responded positively by faith are the elect. So God elected that all who are in Christ will be saved. Now listen to his last statement. And I think this is what made us a great denomination. God's purpose in election, as Paul will define it in Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll get into that next week, is to save not a few but as many as possible. Now with all of that said, my intention is to take the book, of, uh, the book of Ephesians and to exegete it and teach it as best I can from what the Apostle Paul undoubtedly meant. I believe that if you will listen to me, and you will listen more so to the counsel of God's Holy Spirit that it will help you come to some term as to theologically knowing who you are and who I am in Christ. So with that said, real quickly, who wrote Ephesians? Anybody want to guess? Paul. This city that he wrote, is this church, is an early group of believers, believers there in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the capital, the Roman capital, the provincial capital of Asia. 
This city of Ephesus had about 250,000 plus in population. It had gyms, it had gladiators, it had a stadium, it had a theater, it had a temple to, uh, to a goddess by the name of Artemis. If you had the name Diana or Diane, that comes from that word Artemis. And there in Ephesus, it was a money-making business. Now the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he used the word there, apostolos, or sent one. And Paul is making clear that you and I understand that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now we're first introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, you remember when they killed Stephen, this man by the name of Saul was standing there and he was holding the coats while they were putting Stephen to death. Now, I'm going I'm to close in a moment, but I've got to get to this. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and you can go back and read that, read that later on. In Acts chapter 8, and remember the book of Acts is written by Luke, who was a traveling partner of Paul. So he's tracing and chronicling the early beginnings of the New Testament church and he's chronicling this man by the name of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 7.58, he says that Paul was there when Stephen was martyred, the first martyr of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he says that Paul was aggressively persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. When Paul is converted to Christ, his conversion is a radical catalyst of the New Testament church. Paul would go off for years into the wilderness, but eventually he would come back theologically sound and moved by the Holy Spirit to write many of the books that we have in the Bible. The church at Antioch in the book of Acts would eventually commission Paul and send him out as a missionary. First, he would go with a man by the name of Barnabas, but then eventually he would go with another man by the name of Silas. And Paul would scatter all over Asia new churches. He would take missionary journeys. On his second missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. He comes to Ephesus. And while he's there, he's received favorably. The people want him to stay. He can't stay. He says, I've got to, I've got to go, but I'll, I'll come back. And two people by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, they were there in Ephesus. And they began to work with a man by Apollos, a man by the name of Apollos. And they began to encourage him and strengthen him and equip him. And that early New Testament church there in Ephesus began to build up and begin to get strong. The Apostle Paul, a year later, will come back on his third missionary journey and he will begin to invest in that church at Ephesus and there he will begin to build a church that will change, in many ways, the course of the Roman Empire. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, he goes to the synagogue for three months. He teaches there. Eventually, they throw him out and the Apostle Paul ends up going to a place called... Uh, uh, well, it was the Hall of Tyrannus, I believe. And it's there that he's able to preach and continue to preach. And he's preaching the gospel. And the city of Ephesus, this provincial capital of Rome, is experiencing revival and they're experiencing an, a, a riot. 
In fact, there's a man by the name Acts tells it. Paul tell, well, Luke tells the story of a man by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith worker. In Acts 19, verse 24, a man who got upset with the Apostle Paul because people were converting to Christianity and they were no longer worshiping Artemis and they were no longer, no longer losing, uh, using these idols. And because of that, business was down and they were getting upset about it. Wow. That's revival when we leave the stuff of the world our old life, and we begin to invest in the kingdom. And Paul begins to plant and build, and he spends about three years at Ephesus. Ten years later, ten years later, Paul will go to prison. And while he's in prison, he will write a letter to the church at Ephesus ten years later. This letter that we have right here. Why did he write it? He says it. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the faithful, everyone stay with me now. I know this is hard, but we've got to do this. Lewis Talbot said this. He said, Paul was about to unfold the greatest mystery God ever gave believers. And only the faithful could comprehend this revelation Paul would say to the church in 1 Corinthians 3, in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 2, he said, I fed you milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you able now. There are some things theologically that you and I will never learn unless we quit playing church. We come in here with a Bible, we come in here with a notebook and pencil, and we begin to learn what divides us and learn how to, how to remedy it, how to fix it. You and I need to understand what is happening to the largest evangelical denomination in the world. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he said, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, listen to what he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Look at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. My friend, I want you to understand something. That picture right there is firmly in my mind, has been in my mind for many years. And if you and I can understand as we move through this journey in Ephesians what Paul was saying in the original language, if we can grasp that, it will set us free of this controversy. And it will bring insight into your life. So how do we close this out? Paul repeatedly... If you go back and you underline, Paul repeatedly uses the words in Christ, in Him, in love. So Paul wants you and I to understand that that place there, that corral, that holding pen there is a picture of Christ. It is a place of refuge from His wrath. In essence, this is a New Testament ark. You remember the Old Testament? When God was getting ready to judge sin and getting ready to send His wrath, He was getting ready to unleash His wrath on creation. The Bible said that He was grieved, He repented that He had ever created man. You remember He made a refuge. He made an ark. He made a place by which man could be saved. Christ is that New Testament ark. He is a refuge from God's wrath. 
Number two, that is a vehicle of grace. Just like in the Old Testament, the Old Testament ark. Noah's ark was a vehicle of grace. God's New Testament ark is Christ, and that is a vehicle of His grace, and that vehicle is big enough for all of us to fit. When Jesus looked at Nicodemus, He said, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, the cosmos... The cosmos. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever... D.L. Moody was asked about this controversy as far as God electing, God choosing, God predestinating a remnant or a few and allowing the rest to go to hell. They asked D.L. Moody about it. D.L. Moody said, God elected the whosoever wills. But that is a vehicle of God's grace. It is a refuge from His wrath. There's safety there. You see, when you and I come to Christ, and it may be as simple as this. Sheila, you come with me. There came a point that a a young lady in a dormitory came to Sheila with a bright smile on her face and talked to her about Christ and began to share with her. That young lady was doing this. This is what this young lady was doing. She didn't know whether Sheila was elect or not. She didn't care. She was a whosoever will. She just simply brought her there. This girl's name was Karen. And Karen came one day and she introduced Sheila to Jesus. And Sheila's already crying. Because you see, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. He said, I'm the door. He said, you can't get in here unless you come through me. And so Karen introduced Sheila to Jesus. And when Sheila was introduced to Jesus, Sheila went in there. Now listen, I'm watching this. Stay with me here. Sheila is in Christ. That's the word baptized. That means to be immersed. She is now safe, secure in Christ. Nothing can get to her unless it comes through who? Unless it comes through Christ. No sickness, no heartache, no ailment, no nothing. She's safe there. She's secure. She has a place that is secure. Now listen, she can't come out. She's eternally secured. She may not be faithful, but the Scripture says that Jesus will always be faithful. He'll keep His end of the bargain. And that's why we're not Methodists. And that's why we're not Pentecostal. Did you hear me? That's why we're not Pentecostal. She's secure. Now, you can go be seated. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. In the New Testament, you know what a shepherd would do when, in the evening? When the evening came, he would take, he would take, uh, he would take brush and he would, he would make a, a perimeter, he'd make an enclosure, and then he'd take all those sheep, he wouldn't, he would, he'd lead them in there. He'd walk into that enclosure. Those sheep would hear his voice. They would come in, they would come behind him. They would be all in that enclosure. And then you know what he would do? Listen to this. He would lay across that enclosure, across that door. Nothing, nothing could get there. That's safety. Some of you have spent your life trying to figure out whether you're in the enclosure or not. Some of you are in the enclosure and the tragedy is is that you're frightened and afraid and you've never been able to settle your salvation and just accept the fact I'm in Christ, I'm safe, and I'm secure. Now hear me, there is a universal call. 
If this, if, if this is the world, if this is the cosmos, then you and I are just simply saying to all people, as Jesus said, you know what He was saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. All of you in the NIV that are weary and burdened. And listen to this, I'll give you rest. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the last... Almost the last words in the Bible, listen to what they say. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And I promise you this much. If you will stay with me, you won't be Arminian and you won't be Calvinist but I promise you this much, you'll be biblically sound if you will take the journey with me and understand what Paul meant when he used these words that he uses, such as elect and predestined. Now let me ask you a question before we close. Have you ever met him? Do you know him? I was baptized when I was nine years old. I was in, I was in church from the time I was in my mom's womb till I was a grown, a grown man and left house. I thought I knew him. But as a grown man, I knew that the life that I was living was not the life that I should be living. It didn't reflect him living in me. There's two baptisms. One baptism is me in Christ, the other one is Christ in me. And my life did not reflect that Christ was living in me. And I listened to two people one day talking about their salvation, knowing that they were secure, that they were in Christ. It convicted me. I thought, I don't know that. So when those people left, I got up, I closed the door of my office, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm in there or whether I'm out. I have no security. But I know that you love me and you died for me and you paid that penalty of my sin on that cross and you provided a way and you're calling me. You're saying to me, come Jeff, come unto me. Jeff, you thirsty, come to me. I'll give you a drink. And I prayed to receive Christ, and when I did that, listen to me, people, when you do it and it happens, there'll be no doubt. There's just a peace of being here. Some of you don't know that peace. Your life in no way reflects a man that is, or a woman that's in Christ. And you're so close to eternity. And you don't know. I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and with eyes closed. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, nobody looking around. Heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. Right now, I want to ask you a question. Mom, I need you to listen. Dad, I need you to listen. Senior adult, I need you to listen. Boys and girls, I need you to listen. Teenagers, I need you to listen. 
Has there ever been a point in your life that you genuinely encountered Christ? Has there ever been that moment in your life when you came under the conviction of your sin? You knew you were lost. You knew that if you died, you'd go to hell. But you heard the voice of His Holy Spirit. You heard that voice saying, Come unto me. Jeff, come unto me. Sheila, come unto me. Matt, come unto me. Stan, come unto me. Reggie, come unto me. Steve, come unto me. Kathleen, come unto me. Becky, come unto me. You heard that voice personally, intimately calling you. And you encountered Christ. And in that moment, you said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sin. You paid my penalty. I, pro- I believe that you have provided a way for me, not only to have an abundant life, but a way to, when I die, to go to heaven. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you. And I put my faith and my trust in you and nothing else. Mom, dad, young person, boys, girls, have you ever done that? Have you ever done it? Are you, are you in Christ right now? Or not? Only you can answer that question. If you're not, I want to encourage you today to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you right now, if His Holy Spirit is is speaking to your heart. You, you, you know something's going on inside of you to come and take the hand of one of these counselors and to say to them, I want to know what it means to truly be a Christian because I don't know it, but I want to know it. I want to know, I want to know security and peace in being in Christ. Would you do that today? Secondly, there's some in this room you are in Christ, but you have, you have no... Listen, you have no settledness to that. Something went tragically wrong. And you need the assurance of your salvation. You need to know that you know. These things, John says, these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not guesswork. Our Heavenly Father, I just pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to every man, woman, boy and girl. Lord, I know it's been a long, I guess it's been a long message. I really don't know how long I've been preaching. But Lord, I've done the best I can to introduce theologically the struggles and the battles that uh, separate the body of believers. And Lord, it's not that they're not important. They're very important. Because the character of God What we believe about you is somehow tied to all of this. So we pray, dear Lord, as we begin this journey, that our hearts would be sensitive to what you want to say to us and through us and in us. Father, I pray, dear Lord, if there's one here right now, that Lord Jesus Christ, you through the power of your Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart, I pray, dear Lord, that nothing would keep them from coming and saying Reggie or Emily or Leanne or Jeff or Ledge or whoever it may be. Would you talk to me? 
help me to understand. Maybe it's to come and sit down with Sheila and say, Sheila, I want to, I want to know him like you know him. Speak to our hearts, Lord. You bring decisions to David. It's people that need to be at this altar. People that need to plant their life here and be a part of this church. Father, I invite them, encouraging them to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.